0: Alcatraz, the famous prison island that contained some of the most infamous prisoners. Just hearing the word might make you think of Al Capone or Machine Gun Kelly. Or maybe you think of movies like Escape from Alcatraz or one of my personal favorites, The Rock, that has a performance from Nicolas Cage that can only be described as Nicolas Cage taking a giant hit of uh, Nicolas Cage. At Alcatraz, there have been many attempts to escape the island, but only one major attempt to forcefully stay on the island. It happened towards the end of the 60s hippie movement, when a group of Native American activists sailed to the island, took it over, and claimed it for themselves. Since Alcatraz had been closed down completely and wasn't in use, they saw it as being rightfully theirs. For months on end, these activists refused to leave, no matter how many times the government asked them to. And it set off a whole new wave of political activism that continues on to this day. Welcome to the Reconnecting Roots podcast, where we dive deep into unique stories and aspects of American history and culture that are often overlooked by framing the future through the past. I'm your host, Ryan Estabrocks. I'm
1: Gabe McCauley, host of the TV series, Reconnecting Roots, which is currently airing on a PBS station near you, or available to watch on ReconnectingRoots.com.
0: I'll be your guide throughout our story today. I'll be connecting and learning from people all across America. And today, we're looking at our complicated relationship with our land and the many ways Native Americans are taking it back for their tribes we hear from Aaron LaPointe of Ho-Chunk Farms, who has been instrumental in buying back land for the Winnebago tribe.
2: Now we're landowners and it's a great thing because now we actually have the status of, of being a land purchaser on the reservation.
1: And I'll chat with Mark Charles, a Navajo pastor and presidential candidate who explains
3: why our society has such a hard time
1: dealing with the past.
3: I think we're reaching a tipping point Our nation is beginning to recognize that we have some problems and the normal solutions are not gonna solve them.
1: Constructed to perfection and responsibly built for the long haul, Taylor Stitch has taken over 10 years of feedback and is doubling down on their commitment to building the best possible clothing while pledging to limit their environmental impact. From fiber to fabric to factory to end functionality, Taylor Stitch has grown from a need for products without limitations that could handle chopping wood, surf sessions, snagging trout, or simply heading to the office. On top of making the world's best apparel, they're asking questions about how they can protect wild forever. And as a Reconnecting Roots listener, use the code Reconnecting Roots. That's Reconnecting Roots, all one word, for 25% off all products, one use per customer. That offer is valid through July 2021. Taylor Stitch makes some outstanding clothing. How do I know? Because I wear it. I have some. And without a doubt, every time I'm sporting a jacket, a shirt, I get compliments. It looks good on me, so I know it'll look great on you. Taylor Stitch.
4: Knock, knock, who's there? It's Mule
1: Town. I wake up every morning to two things. One, my lovely bride, and two, a cup of Mule Town coffee. It's just good, for goodness sake. Steep, sip, enjoy. Making good coffee has never been easier than with Mule Town Coffee's new Steeped Packs. And whether you're rushing to get kids out the door, traveling abroad, or out hiking the trails. Mule Town Steep Packs are easy to carry, easy to brew, and ready wherever you are. Just add hot water. Visit MuleTownCoffee.com to order Steep Packs today. And as always, have a good one from everyone at Mule Town Coffee. Now through July 31st, 2021, customers will get 20% off Steeped Packs when they use coupon code STEEP IT UP. S-T-E-E-P-I-T-U-P. All one word, steve it up. And if you're wondering out there, is it really that easy? Can I really just go to a website, say I want coffee, and it'll be delivered to my door just whenever I run out? Yeah, it is. I know, because I've done it. Mule Town Coffee. Good for goodness sake. Reconnecting Roots has some new friends we can't seem to shake. I mean, you know those guys. They crash on your couch... Drink all your booze and clutter the sink with leftover bowls of ramen. Earl and Craig host a PBS show called The Good Road with a companion podcast called Philanthropology. That's right, Philanthropology. They travel a ton around the world and seek out cool people who are change makers and tell their stories. Check them out at thegoodroad.tv where you can jump to their podcasts and info about the show. But I will warn you, if you connect with them, they will ask if they can crash on your couch they've done it to me. Earl and Craig really have become good friends of ours. They're such fun people with great hearts and their TV show, The Good Road and Philanthropology, the podcast are worth checking out. They're shows about people doing good. We could all stand to see and hear about more of that. The Good Road with Craig and Earl. Check them out.
0: The history of Native American lands and how colonists seized it is a long, complicated one. But for context, let's talk briefly about how this all started. Even before we called this country the United States, Native tribes were dealing with colonizers from all over the world who sell to their land and try to claim it as theirs, which led to a lot of fighting and bloodshed. In the 1720s, the British tried the diplomatic route of signing treaties with some of the Native American tribes, where both parties would agree on who would get to own which sections of land. But the problem was that the British and Native Americans had different cultural interpretations of what owning land actually meant. The idea of having private property was foreign to many tribes who considered all territory to be shared. And so these disagreements led to more conflict and war. Settlers kept pushing west. The U.S. government started dictating where natives could go, pretty much forcing them to live on smaller and smaller reservations. Today, those reservations make up an estimated 55 million acres of America, which isn't even 3% of our country's land. 44 million of those acres are held in a tribal trust, which means the U.S. government actually owns the title to the land. So you can kind of start to see why reacquiring land is such an important and personal issue for Native Americans. Alcatraz, the famed prison island off the coast of San Francisco, was closed in 1963 and went unused for years. Throughout the 60s, there were a few attempts by Native American activists to take over the island by referencing the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, which said certain tribes could seize land that wasn't being used by the government. None of them were successful. Things changed, however, when the American Indian Center in San Francisco burned down. Natives had asked the city to let them use Alcatraz as their new community center, but were denied. So activists Adam Nordwall and Richard Oakes decided it was time to make a bigger effort with claiming the island for themselves. So, in November of 1969, their group set sail for Alcatraz. The 70 people on that boat immediately set up camp and caught the attention of everyone. The media, other activists, even the president.
4: We will purchase said Alcatraz Island for $24 in glass beads and red cloth, a precedent set by the white man's purchase of a similar island about 300 years ago.
0: That's Richard Oakes giving their proclamation to a group of reporters. He explained their goal was to set up a community there that would help raise new generations by teaching them the ways of life of their tribes. They immediately went to work setting up kitchens, schools, daycares, and housing. Hundreds more moved onto the island as the months went by. Negotiations were ongoing with the U.S. government, but they kept being denied the ability to set up a formal museum and cultural center. And although the government kept telling them to leave the land, they chose not to interfere for a while, instead hoping they could wait this all out. Several months into their occupation, tragedy struck. When Richard's 13-year-old stepdaughter fell to her death on Alcatraz, he left the island. And without their main leader and spokesperson, warring subgroups fought over how to lead going forward. The US government shut off their electricity and prevented barges from coming in that were giving the activists clean water, which became a bigger problem when fires broke out just a few days after that. The occupation lasted into 1971. By this time, many of the activists had already left the island. And with the group dwindling down to about 15 people, the government thought it was the right time to finally remove them. On June 10, 1971, the FBI removed the last remaining occupants from Alcatraz. Although the attempt at reclaiming Alcatraz wasn't a success, the publicity around their occupation energized the rest of the nation's Native American activists and brought awareness of these issues to non-Natives. It may have seemed impossible before, But the 19-month Alcatraz occupation showed everyone that Native Americans have a real chance at regaining complete access to areas for themselves. Over the years, this hope inspired more and more people to find new ways to get back their land, something that was pretty much unheard of even just a century ago. In recent years, the Yurok tribe in California has leveraged that state's carbon offsetting program into a way to buy back reservation land that they've lost. The forests they have ownership of give them carbon credits, which are then bought from companies to offset their pollution in order to comply with California's laws. So far, they've been able to buy back roughly 60,000 acres of land. Prior to this new program, they only had about 5,000. The Kashia Band of Pomo Indians worked out a deal to reacquire 700 acres of ancestral land. Some residents in Oakland have been giving first priority to the Ohlone tribe when it comes to selling their property.
1: And over in Nebraska, the Winnebago tribe created Ho-Chunk Incorporated. Ho-Chunk meaning people of the sacred voice, which is a tribally owned business that uses a couple of different ways to support their people and buy back their land. And one of these ways is by reconnecting to the land itself
2: through farming. Everybody farms in Nebraska. That's what people think about when you think about Nebraska. And we weren't doing any of it. So, So I seen a great opportunity there. That's Aaron LaPointe, the manager of Ho-Chunk Farms. Aaron
1: was born and raised on the Winnebago Reservation in Nebraska. He graduated from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where he studied agriculture. While he was in school, he realized that if the Winnebago tribe started farming their land more, it could benefit their entire community. He started working for Ho-Chunk Farms, which is a company owned by the tribe, and became the business manager of the company in 2017.
2: Our reservation consists of about 120,000 acres, um, but a lot of that has been sold throughout the past of selling to non-native farmers. About 97% of our land is held in federal trust, so we can't collateralize that. We have hundreds of millions of dollars in an asset that we can't use to develop business. And a lot of that was lost way back in, in history when it came down to to just the management of, of paying your taxes and stuff. That's where the federal trust came from was Native Americans get behind on their taxes and start losing a lot of their land on the reservation because they would basically foreclose and people would buy it at a really cheap price. And that was just because natives didn't understand that part of it. I mean, this was this was a long time ago, it was new to them. So sure. So that's how we lost a lot of our land. So
1: it's still part of the reservation, but yet it's owned by non-natives. How does that work? I guess that's a little bit interesting to me to think that it's a still officially considered the reservation, yet tribal members don't even own it, or the tribe itself doesn't actually technically own it.
2: Yeah, and it's it's a little complicated because then over our reservation, we don't even have control over 75% of it from a wow. from management side standpoint. Yeah. Uh, it is still under our jurisdiction, but so we we have control over about 25% of the land and how it's being farmed and what's happening on it, and it's probably even smaller than that because half of that is allotted land, which is fractionated, where the government has management over it. He explained to me that when their land is fractioned, they can have literally
1: thousands of people who have a small ownership of it, which means that none of them have power of attorney. When that happens, power of attorney goes to the federal government or the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And if they want to try and do something with land that's fractioned, They would have to go literally to every single owner and have them sign off on it.
2: Like myself, I own like quarter of an acre, but it's over about 12 different plots. So I have no say in what I'm going to do with that quarter of an acre. at all, you have to have 51% or more to have power of attorney on a piece of land.
1: Ho-Chunk Farms has been quite successful, bringing in over $300 million a year in revenue. Aaron mentioned that just a few years ago, they were only farming on about 1,200 acres of land. But now, they have about 5,400 acres, making them one of the largest farms in northeast Nebraska. And a part of that is due to a big land purchase they made
2: earlier this year. And now we've even evolved into being a land purchaser. With the business model behind Ho-Chunk Inc. and having the ability to have access to capital, and sometimes our tribe doesn't always have that access, we don't want to miss out on opportunities to purchase land. And we thought it was very important for us to be in the game and be able to capitalize on, on the opportunities. Sure. We had, we had an opportunity come up to, with a local non-native farmer that was that was looking to sell a little bit of land. Luckily, we have a great relationship with this guy. Uh, Ho-Chunk Inc. had been purchasing land with from him for the past 10, 15 years to do housing developments. Um, but it was really small purchases, like 20 acres and 40 acres to, to start building new homes when we went in and bought nearly 250 acres for farming, it was the first time, our first time ever buying farmland to farm. I would almost say it was a trial because we've never done it before. Boat Farms is, has always been pay our lease and farm. Now we're landowners and it's a great thing because now we've, we actually have the status of, of being a land purchaser on the reservation.
1: So what, what does it mean to you and the Winnebago tribe to get this land back? Like, the importance of that, not even just from a financial perspective, but just from a emotional
2: perspective. It's always great when you talk about tribes purchasing their land back, bringing back control of it. I mean, that's a big part of it is being able to control. When Ho-Chung Farms purchases it and we start looking at potentially transitioning it to organic and going back to kind of the way we did things, there's an emotional incentive to that. The emotional Uh, connection there is... Is a lot different than than your standard farmer purchasing some land to to make some money. <laughs> That's right. Yep, there's there's definitely that that emotional incentive of of saying, "Yep, this is this is where we were a long time ago, and this used to be ours. We lost it through some downfalls, but now we've risen and we've evolved, and now we're doing good. Now let's let's get it back and let's and let's hold on to it for good this time. And I think it's very important for all tribes to do that.
0: It feels like one of the challenges is just making more Americans aware that this is an active, ongoing objective for Native Americans, that it means a great deal to them, that there's a unique emotional connection to their tribal lands. That awareness starts with non-Natives just sitting and really listening to what's going on and how Native Americans feel. How can we start more of these important conversations that need to be had? I went to New
1: Mexico and met up with Mark Charles, who's a Navajo pastor and U.S. presidential candidate. And the reason why he wanted to run for president is, in his own words, to make we the people mean all the people. He's incredibly knowledgeable when it comes to the history between Native Americans and the United States government and had a lot of great ideas on where to go from here. We stood around a fire, listening to the crackling wood, drinking coffee at his parents' hogan, which is like their house or cabin, on the land that his grandparents first purchased years ago.
3: Every time I come home, I feel very much like, yeah, this is where I like to be. This is where I feel most at peace. This is where I feel, I feel the best.
1: He told me about the unique relationship Native Americans have with this country, and what it feels like to live in a nation that still hasn't come to terms with its past.
3: Being Native American and living on our reservation, it feels like our Native communities are this old grandmother who has a very large and a very beautiful house. And years ago, some people came into our house and they locked us upstairs in the bedroom. Today, our house is full of people. They're sitting on our furniture, they're eating our food, they're having a party inside our house. Now they've since come upstairs, they've unlocked the door to our bedroom, but it's much later and we're tired, we're old, we're weak or we're sick. So we can't or we don't come out. But the thing that hurts us the most, the thing that causes us the most pain is that virtually nobody from this party ever comes upstairs, seeks out the grandmother in the bedroom, sits down next to her on the bed, takes her hand and simply says, thank you, thank you for letting us be in your house. There's that quote by Maya
1: Angelou about how people will forget what you said or what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And I think a story like this, an analogy like this is so great because it helps me to understand someone else's feelings or maybe the pain they've experienced. And so what a great way to provide some common ground for someone like myself and someone like Mark to even just begin to have a conversation to say, let me tell you what it's like or what it's been like by using a story like this that I can relate to. I can imagine, you know, my grandmother in a house being locked up in the, in the room and, and not even able to come out for years. And then when they're, when they're invited out to be too old and too weak to be able to even do that at that time and having no one come up and just say, hey. Thanks for letting me live here. What a great way to introduce someone into his perspective and into the Native American perspective.
3: The quote I love to use is by George Erasmus, who's Dené, indigenous tribe to what's now known as Canada. He said, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. If you want to build a community, he wrote, you have to start by creating common memory I love that quote because I think it gets to the heart of our nation's problem with races, which is we do not have a common memory.
1: What a powerful idea to talk about common memory. When you see on social media right now, everything is so dualistic. It's so divided. People are just having shouting matches. It's from one extreme to the other. And one of the problems is they're not even talking about the same stuff. If you say you identify with a particular thing or belief or group, you're kind of lumped into like all the way extreme side of it over here or all the way over there. And it's really almost impossible to even have a conversation because because no one's starting at the same place. No one's defining the terms in the same way. No one's even agreeing on a common history or a common memory. What a powerful thing that might seem kind of simple, to do like, oh, this is just requires us to sit down and talk and to have the same understanding of of history or a concept, but what an important and powerful
3: thing for us to do. We have a white majority that remembers this mythological history of discovery and expansion, opportunity and exceptionalism. And we have indigenous communities and other marginalized communities that have the lived experience of stolen lands and broken treaties, of slavery and Jim Crow laws, of boarding schools and Indian massacres, of internment camps, of segregation, of mass incarceration. And there's no common memory. And we've never learned how to talk about that history.
1: Not only are you one of our writers on the show, but you uh, do a lot of the research. That's right. So what are some of the challenges to researching, not just for the podcast, but for the TV show, uh, specifically for uh, a topic like this?
0: Well, first off, there's just so much Native American history that we could honestly make a separate Reconnecting Roots TV series on Native American history alone. To try and take some of that history and and make it fit inside of a a 30 minute TV episode or podcast episode is tough because you have to decide what gets included and what gets saved for later. And for Reconnecting Roots, we really try to find the hope in things in in the subjects we look at. We're not trying to ignore the bad stuff because we wanna be truthful. We don't shy away from some of the more difficult parts, but we try to evaluate the progress we've made for each subject in order to decide whether or not it's been good for us or harmful, or maybe it's not even progress at all. Mm-hmm. And the challenge with this is that there is a lot of bad stuff that happened to Native Americans, a lot of betrayals and and even death. How do you strike that balance of showing the good with the bad and not making it feel like it, it tips too much in, in either direction? Yeah. For me, I think the best, most positive elements come from hearing from our guests and, and hearing about the good things that that they've been able to do, uh, hearing their perspectives as to what keeps them motivated and what keeps them pushing forward right I mean they they really, truly are doing some incredible things. so my hope is that their voices and, and their messages can be the positive inspiration for all of us, yeah. So a lot went into making this episode. So much to kind of dive into, and so much that that we learned. I thought it would be great to once again bring on Joel McAfee, our uh, head showrunner. Hey, Joel. Hi. Reconnect Roots showrunner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so welcome back, Joel. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. This episode, obviously, you know, we're talking about a lot. Of history, a lot of events, a lot of emotions, frankly, and a lot of different stories. That's kind of why I wanted to to talk to you, Joel. What were your initial ideas about tackling such a a, a huge topic? Sure. And and for you, Gabe, as well, uh, since you are out there meeting some of these people, like, what were both the all's thoughts going into this?
5: Certainly, we. Felt the the need to try and go direct to the source on this as best as best we could, and um, that that certainly led us to two figure the two figures we spoke with, both Mark Charles and uh, President Jonathan Nez, uh, who I think represent some interesting dynamics in the conversation.
0: And for those who don't know, President Jonathan Nez is is, is the president of the of the Navajo Tribe.
5: Yeah, and both are, are Navajo, actually. And I'll say as we dove into the research on this, it was just evident. Like, who are we, three white guys here that are on this podcast? Who are we to talk about this subject? Um, we can do our best to research it and present it factually. But to speak to some current uh, Native American voices and get their perspective was was extremely important for me.
0: What were some sp- specific things, maybe facts or ideas that really struck a chord with you from talking with either Mark or President Nez?
5: I love to hear his story about um, the amount of support they received on the long walk anniversary. President Nez is a big jogger. They did a, a jog or a race to commemorate that. And he was talking about specifically that they had encountered people who were struggling in other ways like alcoholism is obviously a problem on many reservations and with many natives and he specifically said he encountered people who said i need to get back to my family. That was a pretty interesting story. It felt it felt to me like you know some of those things especially in terms of remembering difficult parts of history can help us today.
1: Mark Charles spoke a lot about things that really coincided with our mission and our values and one of the things he talked about was a particular tribe that looks not only mm. seven generations to the past but seven generations to the future yeah. the iroquois. and that's how they yeah the iroquois that's how they make the you know a decision is it's not just well what's what's good for now or not even what's good for my my kids but what's good for my mm great-great-great-great-grandchildren, and and in order to make the best decision, let's look in the past that far and see what we can learn from. And I thought that was really fascinating.
0: So the big question is, where do we go from here? It seems like some progress is being made, which is, is great.
1: Yeah, and at the very least, Mark says, people seem to be more aware of these problems now.
3: I think we're reaching a tipping point. Our nation is beginning to recognize that we have some problems and the normal solutions are not gonna solve them.
0: And Aaron from Ho-Chunk Farms is offering to help out anyone who wants to know more about how they farm.
2: When we make progress, we wanna share our progress. We wanna share how we got to where we got. I do a lot of work with other tribes and help them get to to kind of where Ho-Chunk Farms has gotten to. I'm always open to helping. I always feel free to reach out. I'm always willing to help out other tribes, and it's not even tribes. It's just other people that want to that want to do good. That's kind of a personal thought of myself, and and kind of how I was raised is that if if you're doing good, or you you've got extra, or you can you got something to offer, you sh- you you share it and you give it. You give just as much as as other people will, because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a lot of other people, and they helped me get here. So I want to help other people get to where we are.
0: Today, Alcatraz has been turned into a tourist attraction. I myself visited there about 10 years ago. You get to see the prison cells, the places where people escaped. Some of the markings made during the Indians of all tribes occupation are still there, visible as soon as you pull up to dock on the island. The history of that moment is told during guided tours of Alcatraz, which means thousands of visitors from all over the world learn more about it every single year the message of what they were trying to accomplish still lives on decades later we want to thank all of our friends who are on the show today we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us Big thanks to Aaron LaPointe from Ho-Chunk Farms. Be sure to follow their new developments at www.facebook.com slash Thank you, Mark Charles, for spending time with us, for having a
1: conversation with me, for, for sharing a cup of coffee and for sharing your passion and your knowledge. You can follow Mark on Twitter at WirelessHogan. That's Wireless H-O-G-A-N.
0: We'll include links in the show notes to all of these places for easy access. You can watch the Reconnecting Roots TV series on your local public television station, on the PBS app, or stream it on our website. Feel free to rate us or leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so we can keep the conversation going. You can also listen to the Reconnecting Roots album where Fire Kid and Mandy McCauley reimagine iconic songs with a modern twist, each song related to a topic on the show. Check it out on Spotify, Apple Music, and other popular streaming services. And now, here's their special performance of Red Wing.
4: Well oh. a feather tonight little red wing little bird sings she's light as a tonight little red wing
1: the reconnecting roots podcast is made possible by the following wonderful people our producer joel mcafee writer researcher and my co-host ryan estabrooks research for this episode also provided by larissa goodlad and joel mcafee Consulting by Dave Boyd. Music supervisor and editor Mandy McCauley, Score George Polly and Paul Kensing. Mixed by George Pauly, and our executive producers, Frank and Karen Smith. And our amazing theme song, America the Beautiful, Reimagined as We're Home by Fire Kid and Mandy McCauley. The, the Reconnecting Roots podcast is a Lil Dragon and Story Scout Studios production.